welcome to Advanced Neuroeducation Podcasts. Informative, interesting topics, guests, and a bit of brainstorming, and sometimes we even have a bit of fun. So, here we go. Okay, welcome everyone to podcast number four. I'm sorry, there's been a bit of a delay since podcast number three, um, but we've been pretty busy at the moment. I had to, I've been away for a couple of weeks teaching full time on an advanced practice in neurological physiotherapy uh, clinical placement, um, which was pretty full on, but pr- pretty good. And actually, some of the things that came up on the placement with the physios has uh, relevance to what we want to talk about today. So, Let's get right into it because we don't want to take up too much of your time. But today's podcast is a motor control musing. And I wanted to talk about my personal top five movement myths. And health myths are, um, are huge, they're very common. Like for example, like, you know, we, always, we, get, we get this information all the time, don't we? Like, have you done your 10,000 steps and have you drunk your eight glasses of water today? Have you taken your multivitamins? Uh, and then other things like, you know, don't don't crack your knuckles or you end up getting arthritis. So obviously most of them are, are, are pretty uh, much garbage, uh, but our life is full of these convincing health messages. And of course, some of them are, have an element of truth, but most of them are pretty much, you know, uh, there's no evidence for these things. In fact, sometimes they're completely incorrect. But when we learn them, they stick, they become embedded in our belief mechanisms. And this is one of, the, one of the most challenging aspects of being a health professional, I imagine. Um, and motor control and movement is not immune to this either. So what is it with movement? What are the things we come up against? Now, we've been, look, we've been recently looking at some of the patients and you'll come across this when you're working with people with movement, you're training their movement, you're wanting to improve the way they move. Often there's some um, pretty strong beliefs in the way people they think they should move um, because it's been something they've taught, it's something they, so it's entered their belief system somehow. And it involves cognitive thought uh, it involves certain kind of rules. So we talk in our course, um, uh, our balance and motor control course, and also our motor control concepts um, for training course, where we talk about rules of engagement. And what are the, if someone does a movement, what particular rules do you want them to follow in order to execute and perform a movement a certain way? So sometimes we use this uh, as part of our constraints on a movement situation to get the movement we're after and that can be helpful but sometimes when you've got these rules around certain movements they actually can be a barrier Um, and they can involve too much cognitive thought because you think most movement actually we we don't think about but sometimes we do have to think about it particularly when we're doing rehabilitation we ask people to to go through a certain stage of movement acquisition we ask them to think but sometimes an, an internal focus is is not what you want. Um, and following specific rules means that you're limiting people's movement repertoire such that they can't um, have the ability to work past that to discover movements that might be quite important um, 
to their life. So let's just think about, there's probably many of these that you can probably add to, but I just wanna add some of my favorites that I come up against. Certainly as a physiotherapist, the number one thing that's got very strong beliefs is this whole idea of don't flex your lumbar spine. We're taught from almost the year dot, if you're gonna lift something for something, keep your back straight and bend your knees. Don't flex your spine. You start getting some beliefs. If I flex my spine, I'm going to pop my disc and I'm going to end up with back pain. It's going to lead to injury and it's unsafe. And it's um, it's also linked to bad posture, whatever that is. And it's linked, you know, it's 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 slumping and it's not good. And when we were at school, we were told to sit up straight or we got smacked with a ruler. There's lots of things that contribute to this idea of don't slouch down, don't bend at your lumbar spine. And there's a lot of very strong fear for some people around that. And there's particular rules that that's just not a movement that should actually happen. However, sometimes we really need to be able to have control and bend our lumbar spine into flexion because it's an important movement. Obviously, we don't want you to sit all day slumped at your desk and up into a forward head posture because of your head stabilization and space strategies, but losing, you know, muscle tone and control in your lumbar spine and, and sitting slumped all day. That's not what we're after, but, but a lot of people actually never go into flexion and they've got a belief in the system that they can't do that. And we will come up in rehab trying to get some posterior pelvic tilt, some lumbar flexion to give people some abdominal control, be able to bend down to try, just to get to their, their feet to, to put a pair of shoes on or put their socks on. Um, we may get, um, I had a patient today where we're trying to gain a little bit of movement out of lumbar extension to lumbar flexion to give them some pain relief because it's a relieving posture because they have sort of a, a spinal stenosis or what used to be called the old neurological claudication symptoms. But everybody needs some lumbar flexion control, even if you're bending down to lift something up gently, or you're able, or, or you're trying to get your knees to your chest, or you're trying to generate, you know, some kind of uh, new movement because you're recovering after a stroke. Lumbar flexion is full of benefits. But of course, how do we come up with when we come up with these people who just think that it's not an option? and they keep their back straight. In fact, sometimes with our training mechanisms, when we do, even do squats, we're asking people to keep a straight back or do a deadlift and keep their lumbar spine straight. There's always an element of truth to this. It's nice to keep your back straight and stable in certain positions, but not to the detriment of being able to control lumbar flexion. So there's a lot of work happening in the pain space. Certainly pain science has taken hold of this in looking at the fact that people have very strong negative beliefs around lumbar flexion. A lot of fear, what's called kinesiophobia, fear of movement. And that fear of movement can be very detrimental for people because they lose a whole movement repertoire and control. They become very weak. They become very afraid. They have predictive expectations about, which will have influences on their perception of pain. And the list goes on and on. So. Watch this space. I suppose the musculoskeletal, our musculoskeletal colleagues be big on this, um, but we see it in I see it in the neurological rehab field too, um, where we're trying to um, change the, the beliefs around lumbar flexion. So that's one. Number two, knee hyperextension, the horrible knee hyperextension that everybody has a little freak out about. Now, when you're dealing with people as we do with things like 
multiple sclerosis or people who have suffered a stroke or spinal cord injury or people with cerebral palsy and we're trying to do gait retraining and balance retraining and they have spasticity in their plantar flexors and then they weight bear through you see their knee flick back into hyperextension or not as necessarily flick back just move into extension into maybe some hyperextension we get very very concerned in fact for young therapists, when you're looking at gait, often it's the knees that's really stand out as the first things we see. And when we see a knee and, and a tibia pushing posteriorly back quite quickly uh, and a knee going to extension, people get quite concerned. And then you start to get conflicting advice. And what I mean is we try and take people out of um, hyperextension. We ask them to have bent, bent knees and soft knees. We, we like to have a a soft loading response in gait um, when you first you know get heel strike or initial contact of your foot if you if you can't get heel strike which is for a lot of our patients and we're trying to get uh, that loading response to be smooth but then going into extension also has its advantages because if you have your knee extended you've got a sense of structural stability and also you can then your plantar flexors like your gastrox huge powerful muscles we can engage them to be able to control progression over um, the shank in terms of um, the body's progressing over in stance phase and gait. Um, and we could try and get a bit more uh, eccentric lengthening, which can get control and strength to overcome some of the things we see with spasticity. So hyperextension, um, we sometimes we're, we're paradoxically trying to say to people, hyperextension is not all bad because it's often a starting point for stability and then we are trying to get people to get control over their knee extension um, not just walk around in some kind of crouch gait and you do have people walking in crouch gait because they were told to do that and they're having then they have real difficulties they have real uh, strength issues with their gastrox um, and then get conflict conflicting sort of advice coming from say an orthotist who likes to um, get that extension control back through an AFO for stability uh, versus a physio who's then trying to get a, a nice soft loading response and therefore a crouch. I suppose why I think it's a movement myth is because I'm trying to get people out of crouch a lot and I'm trying to get knees to extend a lot more and then get control over that. And whether we need an assistance like orth orthotics, we, we would do that, but um, we are trying to get uh, people in a more efficient gait for those that can push off through their gastrox in, in gait and in running, it's incredibly efficient. Um, and walking with a crouch gait is incredibly inefficient and very tiring. And your ability to walk longer distances and your capacity to do that is affected a lot. So reconsider that. Look at have a discussion with your colleagues about knee hyperextension and just do you do you find yourself freaking out a little bit too much? Um, not everyone, but it just seems to happen a lot. The other one is the chin tuck. The chin tuck and sit tall, tuck your chin in. Do not have any, I'm doing it right now, that's why my voice has changed because I'm sitting up nice and tall and I've tucked my chin in and I'm not getting any lordosis in my cervical spine. And I'm I've got a beautiful posture right now, but I look really weird. Anyway, so if you're sitting up tall, you tuck your chin in, that's all wonderful. Now, a lot of people have that. They sit up tall, they tuck it in, they think, 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 and they tuck, tuck, tuck. 
and I've got all this conscious thought. Now, if you sit up tall and tuck your chin in, you've actually then got some limitations. And we're trying to often do things in vestibular rehab, in concussion rehabilitation, after whiplash. We're trying to get neck strong. We're trying to make head stable in space. If you're in chin tucking in, you're then trying to do flexion or look downwards, say you're working at your laptop or you're trying to um, get better um, lateral flexion control with that. If you're tucked in all the time because you've got this conscious thinking, it does restrict what you're able to do. And forward head posture is not great if you're doing it all day, but forward head posture is fantastic for head stabilizing in space as you're moving anteriorly through space. And we do this a lot with persistent dizzy patients. If you want a tip for, for treating um, PPPD patients, these um, people with uh, perceptual postural um, uh, persistent uh, dizziness, we want them to be, have much more head stabilization in space so that when they move forwards and backwards and their head sort of chin tuck, uh, sticks out and then can tuck back in and they're able to stabilize their vision, their predictive motor control improves and they get less dizzy. So what it means is I'm often trying to get people out of chin tuck into a forward head posture as they move forward so that they don't feel as dizzy and they feel more stable. And then we take that into much larger movements like lie to sit, getting in and out of bed, lunging forward and even landing and jogging off a step, jumping off a step and landing and having good stabilization in space so that you don't chin tuck and end up all jolty and looking actually slightly ataxic. So yes, you might want to chin tuck, you might do a bit of chin tuck sometimes because you're mobilizing yourself to get, you know, you see one, two moving and because things are getting a bit stiff and you're getting a bit sort of headachey and neck achey, that's fine. But don't get too obsessed with being chin tucky all the time. And yes, head stabilization in space is forward head posture when you're sticking it out, but it may be a skill worth teaching some patients who are very much stuck in that conscious chin tuck. Number four. Relax your upper traps. Everyone tells you relax your traps. You're elevating, you're hitching your shoulders, you're getting tense, you end up with a headache. I want you to relax your traps, relax it. Okay, relaxing your traps is, and I'm talking about your upper trapezius here, important muscle group. Now, if it's always relaxed, it's a huge, wide expanse of a muscle that's got very important functional roles, particularly around neck and shoulder movements. And a lot of patients have been massaged to death and told to relax and they let their shoulders go and their shoulders come down and they drag and their scaling start pulling, going down to their first rib and they're super relaxed and they're not engaging their trapezius muscles. And often in neuro rehab, for example, but often in whiplash um, rehabilitation, in concussion, all these patients we see a lot of, where, and in, in stroke, when we're trying to get shoulders going, we actually try and engage the trapezius to work a bit more. We don't want it to relax and we actually want it to turn on. We want it to get stronger. We want it to get a bit more selective and how it gets more control. So it can go from a full contraction to a half contraction and to a little bit of a contraction before as a, as a primer before then doing other prime movers like deltoid coming in and you know supraspinatus and we're trying to get sort of elevation shoulder activity we're trying long head of biceps so 
Upper trapezius activity, often we're finding a lot of people are consciously turning it off because someone's told them to and they're trying to emulate that and they come and see me as a physio and I'm them trying to switch it back on. And I don't want them wall walking around like, you know, their ears up around, their shoulders up around their ears and just having really tense shoulders. No, I'm trying to engage it a little bit and not flicking it off all the time. Muscles, if they're slightly active and they're changing the activation, they give a lot more proprioceptive input and it's really nice to get your traps back and it's often a quick win when we're trying to get better shoulder and better neck movement. So have a think about that one. How often are you telling your patients? Or how often are you telling yourself to relax your trapezius? And maybe you should maybe turn it on a little bit. The last one, and this is just my list of five because I know there's more and it'd be interesting to see what, guy, what you people think. Um, the last one is core stability switch on your core if some of you have heard me talk before about core stability we could talk, talk all day about it so core stability the core muscle groups um you know around the abdo uh, abdomen so abdominal muscles deep transverse abdominus multifidus um in in, lum in lumbar spine for example and then you've got the pelvic floor muscles and you've got um you know other muscle groups around the abdomen in terms of the obliques and then trying to get uh, control of pelvic tilt and we're trying to then also consider diaphragm and breathing but the core core stability has obviously um, become <clears throat> integral part of physiotherapy for example and there's certainly we remember back to the late 90s when uh, the, the research work was done that showed the people with the low back pain had delayed activation in these deep muscles like transverse abdominus and uh, multifidus and and then somehow there's this reverse logic that started to appear then if, if we activate those muscles could we help people with low back pain and of course um, that's not necessarily the case but it's certainly interesting to feel that um, to realize that people with low back pain had different different forms of motor control and they have different ways to stabilize their trunk and their core and we've spent a lot of time working on that now we know core stability is important but it's the way people train it so you can engage these muscles through action through how they use their upper limbs or how you might engage in certain activities to improve performance to get stability around the pelvis so there's less um, uh, tilt or there's less um, proximal hip instability uh, like Trendelenburg or there's less excessive rotation we, we often try and stabilize people up so that they're more efficient and they can perform more tasks and they can get more dynamic with their balance training for example or they're able to stabilize their trunk while they move their upper limbs um, and use that much more accurately and more quickly there's lots of reason why core stability is an important thing um, but it's the thinking bit it's the drawing the tummy in that people think is thinking i need to think about my core and then people start thinking about their core and their breathing and and so maybe it gets a little bit too conscious and conscious thought and and too much internal focus first of all steal some of your attentive cognitive control away from something else you might be trying to do um, and it also may mean the focus is just too much on on something that you perhaps you shouldn't be thinking about too much in a in another form of movement performance so i suppose as a movement myth core stability has just got blown out of control a little bit 
Um, it's one part of, of movement, but we've got big prime movements around the hip and the abdomen and big around the trunk, and we've got intercostal muscles, and we've got our big pecs and our lats. All these movements around the trunk that we try to engage with big movements, and we often try to induce these movements and this stability through action and choose movement performance tasks that actually invite or engage those muscles because it sort of has to happen through a form of, if you like, um, through a, a form of um, forced engagement. And, and, and often that's the way we would often prefer to bring in core stability rather than focusing on the core and thinking about core stability. Of course, a lot of people working core stability would, would you know, consciously use it first, but then try, and, then try to pull back and not have people think about it. Um, but, you know, if you think about how people choke in sport, and we'll talk later on about the, the reinvestment theory, it's very hard for people to break their thought patterns. So if they are thinking about their core and they've done that for a while and then you're asking them to engage in a new task and they're thinking about their core, um, it's, it's a learnt behaviour that we may consider changing. Speaking of learnt behaviour and changing, well, beliefs are strong. Um, we know this. And, and the big question is, if people have very strong beliefs about things, so today we're talking about movement, if they have very strong beliefs about their movement, can we actually change this? Is it possible? Um, because it's one of the most challenging parts of being a health professional is to change um, behaviour. Uh, and often we're trying to change into more healthy behavior and this comes up in discussion all the time you hear it at conferences you hear it in research reports it, almost on a daily basis um, we can approach it from a, like a behavioral change thing so if, if you think about the old ideas of cognitive behavioral therapy so that's where you think about people's thoughts about things their feelings their emotions about things and also their, what they do their, their actual behavior around things and people can self-evaluate these those things and so cognitive behavioral therapy is extremely relevant for a lot of our patients that we're trying to change with persistent you know attractor states or persistent uh, movement behaviors that may be limiting their potential but um, it's not all about just doing like a form of psychological cognitive behavioral therapy. We could, as if you're a physiotherapist, for example, or if you're involved in movement coaching, if you're another health professional, that's fine. One method I would consider using is the idea of how do we do movement training to change these, these um, behaviors. Um, through movement so you could communicate yes you can communicate via voice because you can also communicate with people via your hands um, and you can also do a form of movement discovery so you could use your hands maybe or you could use your instruction or the patient could could go through uh, what's a what is often called a form of guided discovery to discover movements that that we're trying to do and what we're trying to do is we're trying to change negative view about movement through actually moving um, in certain ways. So you can explore, explore different movement options. For example, a patient with chronic pain who's very fearful, they could explore some movements that they find perhaps not so painful and, and remove some of the threat around certain kinds of movements. The other thing that's really, really important is that if you're talking about changing a movement performance and you're discovering a new movement, you also want to discover the benefits that it brings. So rather than just say, yes, I want you to draw in your transverse, draw in your belly button, I want you to sit up tall, and I want you to 
engage your trapezius and all these things that we've been talking about. That's all very well and good, but it has to feel different. It has to improve your performance. So I'm talking about, you know, you can do something faster, better, further without the threat of pain or without the threat of instability or a loss of balance. And what you're trying to do, you're giving people control like you would a sense of control in cognitive behavioral therapy. What you're doing is you're giving them control of their motor control, their training control and predictability through movement. And so what you're doing is through movement, helping them get control over their uh, a much larger situation that may be happening in this in in this instance. You can change predictability, and we often would like to challenge people and make things more unpredictable because we're trying to encourage things like motor learning and skill acquisition. But sometimes you want to be more predictable. You actually want to um, make the movement or the task you're trying to do less challenging um, and give more choice uh, for the patient to control the movements and, and they have the choice then in the homework that you give them. So just like in forms of psychology, you would think about doing homework, but you actually give the person choice saying, here's some new movements, I want you to explore those, but you've got choice, you can do this mo uh, mo uh, homework A, B and C, and often B and C are the ones that are a little bit more difficult, but A is a bit more easy, but they've got the choice. And then that form of choice we think is very powerful because then you're handing over the keys of responsibility to the person and they can discover movement and they can start to take control of their training as well. You, through moving and teaching them new movements and control, and often what we're trying to do is get quick wins, and we'll have another podcast about how you can use quick wins um, as a convincing way for a person to get more control over their movement. Um, you can use that to build rapport and they, they have trust in you, that you're, you're helping them find something that's very, very quickly useful. Um, and that's, I suppose, if you're, you're not a movement analyzer or you're not really a hands-on physio, then you may have some limitations in that, but you can also use your other skills, I suppose, to be able to build rapport and help the patient discover these things. But I'm someone who uses a bit of hands and a bit of no hands teaching homework um, because I'm moving things a lot faster. I would only, only bring in my hands to be able to, because I'm impatient, to help people just, just uh, discover movement control and get control of as quick as possible. So motor learning is obviously a large part of that, but learning and control and therefore behavior change is all linked in with that. So some of you might have seen stuff around the behavior change wheel, which was a big paper that we all sort of refer to in relation to behavior change for a paper from Michi. Um, and that talks about things that sources of behavior can, can change around capability, opportunity, but also motivation. But what comes with that is how can you do your movement training and you can move. Um, so it's not all just a cognitive thinking process. There's actually a way you can discover it through exercises. So it's nothing new. It's like, you know, one of the physios that was just on our place and has just qualified as a Feldenkrais uh, practitioner. And if you talk to these people in Feldenkrais, this is what it's all about. It's, it's guided exploration of movement. It's gaining control. It's proprioceptive awareness which can be incredibly powerful and aligns quite well with some of the things we're talking about. So the other thing is too, what happens though when you have these movement myths 
and you're trying to teach these people these new movements and it's in complete contradiction to another therapist they've got or another therapist disagrees and then the patient is confused. So, you know, one of the ways around that is a joint session so that you've got a much better uh, direct line of communication and you can both explore, both therapists explore things together, but I understand that's not always possible. Ultimately, the patient has to make the choice. And I usually make sure that I don't pressure the patient. They can make the choice as they want to do, uh, but most importantly, they need to make the decision. But I think you've got these opportunities to give your point across, have a session with them where they can have some guided discovery of movements and, and, and start to change their opinion about what is a good or what is a bad or what, what movements are actually allowed and are not threatening. And when we talk about threats, we often talk about things like pain and we're often talking about things like instability um, and, and it's all those innate fears. I, I don't want to move my back because I saw my MRI and the doctor said I had a crumbling spine of an 85 year old, um, so I'm very afraid to move. So the fear could also be around damage um, and, and catastrophic change. And it's just a work in progress to, through movement, quickly realize that it feels okay and I'm going to be okay. And that, But that sort of stuff won't necessarily happen very quickly. I just think if you're a physio or you're a health professional involved with movement, you get them to move. It's a fast way of changing a movement myth, um, especially if you've decided together that movement myth is actually holding that person back from exploring a repertoire that's going to be important for their walking, their running, their rolling in bed, their ability to get out of a chair, uh, their ability to jump over the fence, their ability to kick a football or their ability to do a bit of gardening. So there's just so many uh, you know, goals that people have that we want to work through towards. I've just saw the time and it's now 29 minutes and 10 seconds. I try and keep these podcasts less than half an hour. Otherwise, you're going to go bonkers and you get really bored with my voice. Just let you know about the next podcast is probably one of the most interesting ones. It's around migraine triggers. Um, so that keep an eye out for that. Um, the concussion after that will be, we'll talk about concussion baseline testing and what's happening in the field of concussion baseline testing because there's a bit of controversy about it but it's certainly a growing area. And I think we've got some nice ideas about where it fits in to best practice uh, as we learn more about concussion. And then finally, the one, the next podcast after that, where we're gonna be talking about what's new with benign paroxysmal positional vertigo, uh, BPPV, um, and perhaps, you know, not just thinking about otoconia as calcium carbonate crystals and they're causing all the problems, but just thinking about all the other problems that people with BPPV have and our new thoughts about what um, benign paroxysmal positional vertigo is um, and, uh, and why some people have different outcomes with their treatments. So that'll be an interesting one as well. So I'll leave it there. Have a great day. And remember, don't believe everything people tell you. Movement myths are out there to get you. Goodbye.